Hi, this is Corey McRae, the senator for the 45th Legislative District, and you're listening to the Condoy Street Podcast, my go-to source for the latest news and insight on state and local government in Maryland. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? I'm fine, Kevin. You? Doing very well. Today on the podcast, we are going to update you on the latest meeting of the Kerwin Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education. Because that's what we do. That's what we do. <laughs> and there were some pretty decently big developments yesterday as we record here on Wednesday, November 13th. And then we'll get into a recurring theme on this podcast New technology driving new policy. We'll talk about a couple interesting issues there. But Michael, first, as you said, this is what we do. Let's first talk about the Kerwin Commission meeting yesterday. Really two parts. We had about a six-hour meeting of the commission, sure. and then we had a public hearing at the end. Right. So And and they had a loaded agenda for their full-day meeting. There, I mean, there's lots of task forces and commissions that have meetings that go for an hour, two hours, that sort of thing. Kerwin has always been, you know, show up in the morning. We'll be give you a lunch. We'll bring you through the afternoon. We'll wrap you up at four thereabouts. So it was ten to four again yesterday. Right. And the, the you know the front end of the meeting was was interesting and substantive. It wasn't exactly county government issues. There was a lot of I don't know consternation, a little back and forth about regulations for teacher licensure and and uh, and certification and so forth. And this is a process where it sounds like the the state Department of Education and the teachers' representative groups you know, have differences of opinion on how, how things ought to, ought to look and how they ought to build out. And to some degree, that that has has influence on recommendations that the current commission is making. So that's why they were taking a look at it. So that, that was an in-depth look at a particular issue that I didn't know was common. Right. A lot of that was, you know, the State Department of Education has written regulations, and the questions were mostly about how do these regulations fall in line with our recommendations. Right. And a lot of back and forth about they do, they don't, a lot of questions, yeah. and that went on for a long time. Yeah, so that, that was a full a full morning, and it sounds like there's some probably aligning to be done there. So you know, this is not our, not really our lane, but the back half of yesterday's meeting, they did get into you know, funding and timelines issues, which are the sort of things that we had been anticipating and, and looking forward to. So it got substantive in the afternoon. Right, so for the first time, I think, Michael, we saw a categorical breakdown from now until fiscal year 30 about the potential ways that this this program, the entire recommendations as a slate could be phased in. So that was something new that we hadn't seen before. And there was a lot of discussion about that and priorities. But my big takeaway, we can talk about that, was that really yesterday was we now have to start understanding the fiscal realities, the political realities of the cost of these recommendations, how we can phase these in and, and sort of make it work without sacrificing other essential services at the state and the local level. I think part of that, I, I, found, I found it very interesting watching the commission members as the conversation drifted to, here's what the phase-in looks like. And the bottom, we, we've seen bottom line numbers for each of the first few fiscal years. Right, and right. we had an idea where it was going to end. But this was the first time that the commission staff and the legislative staff put together sort of a side-by-side. -side. Here's a sheet of paper. We, you know, we've we put this on, on our blog coverage. It's got some greens and yellows highlighting different areas on the page, but it's trying to show here's where things were when the commission last worked on this in January. And then here's what the formula funding work group put together for their timetable. And the difference between the two I mean, it's not news to us. Right, right. It's not news to listeners of this podcast, but it seemed to land as shocking and jarring news to many commission members. Right. And that's because many of them were not on the formula funding work group. Maybe if they haven't been listening to this podcast, they didn't realize that some of these numbers and some of the phase in timelines here were changed. So it was a little bit odd for people like us and and for the county people who have been attending each of the meetings through the summer of the formula funding work group. We've already taken for granted oh, they're going to they're going to slow some of these things down. They're going to smooth out the costs, And that's exactly what they've done in a variety of ways. Right. Uh, 
And then the presentation of that to the full commission turned into uh, there were you know there were questions and comments like well what what have they done what have they done with our plan what what got thrown overboard can somebody explain to me which children are going to be denied their most essential services right. in years 1 through 9 of this plan right right and that was a lot of the discussion is okay well if we delay the phase in of this category what does that mean and and really prioritizing what needs to come first and second and third all the way until you get to the end of year 10, that is going to be a pretty big discussion moving forward, but not necessarily by the Kerwin Commission. It could be a discussion at the General Assembly. I think that's probably right. And we saw, I think we saw signs of that at yesterday's meeting. To the extent that there is a group that are exerting some leadership within the commission, you know, the chair, Dr. Kerwin himself, is an influential voice. And when he says, I think we'll be able to get to that later, that pretty much settles the issue. Right, right. But you can see a few of the legislative leaders who are already anticipating they're going to be shepherding a bill into and through the legislative process. They, they are all already are thinking about some of these issues, too. So, you know, no surprise, Senator Ferguson, Delegate McIntosh, uh, when they are speaking on some of these issues, sometimes that's a tactical conversation as well as a practical one. And again, we did hear some questions about revenue and how to pay for this. And, and Dr. Kerwin politely no, reminded no, the, the commission, we're not doing that. Right? right? We're not talking about revenue. We're here to talk about what we need to do. Revenue is going to be up to the General Assembly. So, Michael, on this on this phase in, we think that it might go to the full General Assembly. Was there anything that stuck out to you? You know, you mentioned we've been following the formula funding work group over the summer. We were ready and anticipated some of the changes that were made. But anything major stand out to you being in the room yesterday and listening to this? I think, to me, the the realization that grasping every piece of this puzzle is genuinely beyond the capacity of almost any human being is just the paper trail alone is is an is an important takeaway here, and actually. I, I don't want to underestimate that as an important element in how this gets considered. Um, we've seen this tons of times in the legislature when the bill is 80 pages long, all you read is the three-page summary. Mm-hmm. And if the three-page summary is in Greek, then you end up saying, okay, I can't even absorb that. Can you tell me just the little tiny elevator speech? Tell me the two sentences why I need to pass this bill. Right. And and we see that happen at a policy level. I mean, people get all up in arms because, oh, my my U.S. senator didn't read the, the, uh, the Obamacare bill before she voted for it or vice versa, that sort of thing. And like, the reality is people have a limited capacity to become an expert in every topic. Even if you're a member of this commission, we saw it right in front of us. Members saying, now, I'm not sure I understand how do these two pieces go together? And the staff would say, no, it's not on that sheet of paper. We need to go to a different sheet of paper. It's over on the seventh handout from today. Right. So everybody's got this, you know, they're trying to juggle pieces of paper and organize all this stuff. It's complicated. And that that lends a lot of deference to expertise. So that means the staff and the outside advisor who have helped assemble a lot of this stuff, a lot of people are just going to be inclined to say, okay, all right, uh, thanks. Thanks for explaining that. Yeah, I don't have the capacity to go through and figure this out. So I'm going to just go with what you just told me. And that's true. I mean, if it's a massive omnibus bill, especially if it gets introduced later in session, and there's less time to move it through, there's going to be a lot of that, you know, I I would think if, if it's a huge bill, not a lot of people are going to have time to read everything and get really into the details and understand exactly what this does. You get a, an overall picture of what the bill does, but when you get into the minutia, you know, there are some important components there, but as you said, I don't think many people understand exactly what this is. And even for the commission members, I mean, they've been doing this for three years now. The last time they talked about some of these things was at least a year ago. So right. you can understand why they're, please remind me how this plays sure. into that. And I thought we did this and it's no, we didn't do that, but here's the new sheet. And then please flip to right. you know, appendix C and, and that'll show you exactly what this is. It's hard to keep up with. Right. And, and, you know, the consultants from out of state who are working here, but they have, have worked in other states, they've said, you know, Maryland already has one of the most complicated formulas uh, for, for funding schools and doing the distributions and so forth. So we're already complex and it's getting increasingly so as we make all these refined 
refinements and add-ons and so forth that this commission's recommending. So it's tricky stuff. It's not it's not anyone's fault that it gets too much to handle, but that does change the nature of the debate a good deal. I agree. And Michael, one thing I want to get into that was interesting, sort of at the end of the meeting, the commission was discussing a potential new funding mandate for special education services. Talk a little bit about that and how you read the room there and what they were discussing. Well, it was an interesting pivot. This was the last item on their agenda for the day. And one of the commission members is very well versed in special education. He is, um, he, he does advocacy work on behalf of students and their families to make sure they're getting the services they need. But he's, you know, he's a, he's a real expert in the field. Um, he was raising concerns that we know more resources for special education is part of this plan. A big part and of he's, it. And he's been a big advocate for that and has helped shape what that looks like, no doubt. Uh, he wants to make sure that new money that's earmarked as special education dollars actually ends up going to special education and to supplement rather than supplant current special ed funding. Right. So this is this has a flavor of uh, the term maintenance of effort already occupies a lot of oxygen in the room when we talk about school funding because that's what the state obliges for the counties in total. Mm -hmm. But it it sounded like what he wanted to say was, I want to make sure that when you're getting X new dollars, you're spending at least X more dollars on special ed. Right. Um, That you're not just saying, well, I'm spending all this money now. Now I'll just take the new money. I'll take the money that I was spending and divert it to something else. Right. So they don't want to supplant current investment. We want this to be new commitments to special ed. Then there were subsequent commission members who spoke on that, all of whom I think were philosophically in tune saying, okay, I want to defend special education and I agree it's a priority. I want this money to go there. But each subsequent person had a different thing to say about it, a different idea what could go into a report or into a bill. And ultimately, Delegate McIntosh, possibly exerting a little bit of that commission leadership we just mentioned, um, she basically threw a bucket of water on it and said, why don't we table this until the next meeting? Let's get some things sorted out and not vote today. Right, let's all understand exactly what we're voting on here. So let's give it give it a week. But the, the direction that was heading was a peculiar one in my mind because it, it, it seemed to be – like the commission or the legislation might ultimately say, you know, each county would be sort of accountable at the sub level, not the full budget, but what did you do in this part of your school budget? What did you do in that part of your school budget? And we'll have a maintenance for special education, but then well, oh, what about the students with limited English proficiency? Oh, well, yeah, I would do the same thing for that category of funds. What about the money that's going for the schools with a high concentration of poverty? Let's make sure that money's only being used for related programs. You know, you could see how this could pile up. So literally like categorical maintenance right. of effort. Right. But I mean, what that amounts to is the state basically reaching down and exercising a ton of decision-making authority at what has always been the local level. Right. So if you want to say aggregate funding is supposed to go to these sorts of things and locals need to do their share, whether it's maintaining their effort or the new vision, come up with your local share of the formula – that's 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 kind of the state's right to do so. I mean, we will have some counties who will grieve over that, but philosophically, you know, the state can sort of set the measures. The idea of saying, well, every component is now up to us too, starts to be, you know, why why go through the charade of a local budget if if we're if we're telling you you have to do all these different components and the total has to be this. At some point, you're going to end up with. Why have a public hearing? Right. Everything we're doing here is mandated penny for penny by state law. So why have a school board budget? Why have a county budget? Just the, the state can just send us an invoice and we just pay it. Yeah, we don't, why do you need a school board at all? Right. right. I mean, right. everything's going to be accounted for. This is how you're going to spend it. You don't need to have those meetings. You don't need to hear from your constituents. And, and I, so, so that's one direction that I think this conversation could go that maybe got cut off by, you know, let's, let's table this and come back. That the other thing that was peculiar, and this is a little in the weeds, but again, this is kind of our lane. I heard one commission member who's well grounded in these topics seem to say, 
I don't think the local dollars should be able to to be come down, even if the caseload of special ed students comes down. Right. So she seemed to be saying that the dollar amounts should be maintained year to year, even if your number of students identified as having special needs and needing those services comes down. Now, that's significant because this is one of the things we talked about before, one of the assumptions that this commission is right. making, right? This is a this is a this one of the main cost-saving ideas of the entire Kerwin program is that after a 10-year rollout, we will have cut the roles of our students needing special education services by half. Right, because so, we're going to provide so many services up front right, when they're yeah, younger. We're going to earlier screening and we're going to catch them sooner and we're going to get them treatment they need and get them back on track and back up to grade level, which is which is great. If that happens, there's going to be a lot of people happy and a lot of families happy and, and so forth. Sure, so that's, that's a great outcome if we can deliver it. But if we're assuming there's going to be a lot fewer kids needing services, the idea of saying, but but keep maintaining the dollars irrespective of what the population count. I mean, what what do you do? You 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 know, plate plate these special books in gold or something? I mean, it's I mean, th- there's something counterintuitive about that logic. It's not. It's not a far-fetched idea that the populations would come down. You said so yourselves. Right. And then, you know, one of the questions was, well, are we talking about, you know, just the money as a whole? Or are we talking about per pupil? Because that would mean even if you, your number of students declined, you'd still have to spend the same amount of money per pupil. That'd be a little different. Right. But still, you know, one of the goals here is to reduce the number of special education students by 50 percent by year 10. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, at least, where you would say there shouldn't be any sort of reduction in the cost by year 10 right. because that has never happened. The door we're sort of abutting and knocking on is one that that tells us special education itself is dramatically more complicated than our generic funding per student that's in the foundation program. One thing that we know is out there is that students requiring special needs have a wide range of services they need. Right. So there are some students who are identified as, as special education who they need extra time to take tests, mm-hmm. or they may need some help in processing written material. They may need someone to speak materials to them, things of that nature. So that's some staff time. That mm-hmm. might be a little bit of physical space. Uh, That's not the same thing as students who have profound disabilities. They may need medical care on site all day long. They may need special instruction for hours each day and so forth. Um, Those, you know, there are some students who have needs that dramatically outstrip other students. So, you know, at at some point, oh, do we break down this entire formula and say, what about grade one, grade two, grade three, grade four? Suddenly this, you know, Maryland's already super complicated formula could blossom into another whole fractal of different dimensions of funding and so forth. I think they're wary of doing that, but that's part of the reality here is moving kids within the gradations of special education is probably a subsidiary outcome. Mm-hmm. Some kids will drop out of the program because they're up to speed. Right. Some kids will get to a point where they don't need as much help as they used to. That's a success also, but they're still in the population count. This is this is a slippery slope that they've stepped onto talking about mandating dollars for special ed. And as you said, you know, the slippery slope extends not only to special education, but it could go to all those other categorical areas, sure. right? And so the, it really could get complicated. Right. You happen to have an advocate who, who you know, who sort of tipped the, the, who tipped one boulder at the top of the mountain talking about special education, but this could easily turn into a landslide. Right. You mentioned they met for about six hours. Then there was a, a break for dinner. Hopefully they were all able to eat. There wasn't much time. <laughs> and then you had a big public hearing. We talked about this last time that there would be a public hearing. There'd be opportunity for folks to come in and testify. And Michael, to me, it seemed like this was mostly a big pep rally uh, for what the Kerwin Commission is doing, the recommendations that they've made. But there were some folks who did raise some concerns about costs and generally these recommendations and how they will improve student outcomes. So definitely a, a big room full of blue, short, blue shirts seem to be the order of the day. So 
a bright blue t-shirt, uh, identified you as part of a larger group who were all supported the bill. There was a big sort of peanut gallery that was, that was able to clap after every panel that said, we support the bill. Here's, here are the great things it's going to do and so forth. Right. Um, some of those groups were light on details. Uh, some of them were very focused on particular areas, but there, there were definitely a lot of supporters who have been saying, you know, we're hanging our, ha- our hats on what you're doing. This is great. Right. So, and, and, you know, we, we've said all along, this is a, we heard that we heard these words a fair amount through the evening. It's a, it's a generational political question. Transformative. About, yeah. So, and, and this, this stuff of this magnitude doesn't come along very frequently. So this is a, a really big deal in policy terms, in fiscal terms and all of the above. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that, that makes sense. So we, we, we had uh, some county governments who, who showed up in, in various forms. Uh, some of the counties were there arm in arm with their school system leadership with school board members or superintendents. I think that was uh, noteworthy. Yeah, and I'm sure, I'm sure the commission would pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- it was interesting. Some of the counties who, who chose to come and talk did so from very different points of view. Right? I mean, you had Worcester County had a big panel of people. Right? Yeah, I think so, they said stand up if you're with Worcester. And, right. You know, it seemed like half the room was standing so up. The, so there was there was a there were a whole a whole tier of people from Worcester County, and Worcester County I think has a central grievance that they don't feel they're being treated fairly by the wealth formula. Right. They're frustrated that the commission and the funding work group collectively decided we're not going to change the wealth formula at all. Mm-hmm. And they're left already funding schools higher, substantially higher than any other jurisdiction in the state, despite the fact that hiring a teacher in Snow Hill is nowhere near as expensive as it is to hire a teacher in Annapolis or Rockville or Columbia or downtown Baltimore. Right, right. Right. So, so I mean, they're dealing with that end of the funding formula. And on a certain level, the commission has sort of said our sympathy for wealthy places is limited. But, they, you know, when you hear Worcester County talk about the share of their students who get subsidized lunches mm-hmm. and, you know, the issues that they face, I mean, they, that's a county with a great deal of relatively poor rural areas. Yeah, as soon as you get outside yeah. of Ocean City and those right. high property values, things are a lot different. And I think, you know, their concern is we're now baking the, this wealth formula in moving forward. And so we have a chance here to, to make these adjustments, ones that we think are important, but now you're baking this into all these recommendations moving forward, and we, we want to raise that point. Right. So so the details aside, um, that was interesting. But then later in the evening, we heard from Caroline County, another eastern shore jurisdiction, but they're on the opposite end. I, I don't remember exactly whether they are they come in as the poorest or the second or third poorest, but I mean, they're at the opposite end on that wealth formula. Mm-hmm. And they're a jurisdiction that, at least by the plan as it sits before us, is being told, come up with a whole bunch more money locally. I mean, Caroline County just went to the max on their income tax last fall or the fall before. So they've made a commitment to local taxes. They just, there's not a whole lot of income there to tax. No, and think about it. I mean, they went to the max so they could build a school. Right. Right. Like they're trying, <laughs> so they taxing want to build for education, school. they're doing it. Yeah. Right. Right. So you can understand how these issues land fiscally different in different places. And there are some jurisdictions who are looking at the sheet of paper so far and saying, okay, this doesn't look like it gets to me. I'm still worried about these uncertainties and I'm worried about the state maybe not having the resource to uphold its side and this will come back to bite us. But I mean, in the aggregate, I think there were some useful perspectives put on the table by county representatives and nobody came to the table being disrespectful. Nobody showed up, said education is terrible. I don't care about our kids. I mean, no one's doing that. So everybody, you know, agrees that the mission is a worthy one. It's the mechanics, you know, sort of the devils in the details. This is time to sort out the details. So this is when they're pointing out those devils. Right. That's a great point. I mean, obviously different perspectives from different counties, but of course, everybody thinks that, you know, the goals of this commission are admirable and, and, and very important. It's just how we get there. So, Michael, you mentioned before a couple of issues were tabled. What lies ahead here? I know the commission is scheduled to meet again on November 21st. Could we see another meeting after that? We expect this whole thing to wrap up by November 30th, correct? That's that's the plan. So, I mean, at the moment, 
Uh, the 21st, the middle of next week, is nominally the last meeting. Uh, they made mention of a, of another meeting early during Thanksgiving week, which I'm sure was, was uh, met with great delight by the professional staff who have been spending day and night trying to pull all this sort of stuff together. Right. So I don't, I don't know, you know, what to expect there. I, I, I would say one thing that last time we talked about this, we talked about a to-do list for the commission and we worked with the assumption that a couple issues that didn't get finalized by the funding formula work group would be handed back to the commission to get ironed out. Namely, there's an unspecified duration phase in for this mandate that the counties reach their local share. Right. And they did discuss that a little bit yesterday, but nothing concrete. Only very briefly. Right. And and they seem to deliberately set that conversation aside rather than I mean if they were just if they if they said this is going to be on our agenda next week, we're going to get into detail there. The staff and the chair had every opportunity to say so and didn't. Right. So all it was is we're not I, talking about that. We're today. not going to talk about that today. Mm-hmm. And then we, we also know, which they didn't get to at all, I don't think, is the list of funding that counties provide on behalf of schools or their students, but isn't in the school budget. Right. The, the, the funding work group said that money should count toward these funding obligations, but we don't know how broad that defini- definition is. We don't know how many, how many dollars it might affect. What does it, what does it do to a couple of those big jurisdictions that have the outlier, you know, the, the gasp worthy numbers of how do you get to 300 and some million dollars in annual funding, you know, locally from Baltimore City from sure. Prince George's County. Sure. So we don't know. Does it move the needle there? Does it turn 350 into 300 or 150? We don't know. We don't know, but we think we. You should look at it. <laughs> Full commission. You should look so at it. I was. I would have guessed. I mean, as of a week or two ago, we were we were saying on this podcast. Sure. I mean, they'll have to sort that out. They can't let that just you know, get decided in the vagary of the space between here's a final report and then here's a piece of legislation. Uh, I now might reset my expectations and say that's precisely what's going to happen. Yeah. And that's why I asked, I mean, could there be another meeting? And obviously not ideal to have a meeting, you know, Thanksgiving week, but it seems like one more meeting, there's a lot to sort out here, including taking final votes ostensibly on all of this, right? They, right. They're going to have to go around the room and take these votes. But this to-do list that, that you just mentioned, again, that these are still outstanding and we don't really have a clear idea of whether or not they're going to be resolved on November 21st or in a subsequent meeting. But obviously this thing is still scheduled to wrap up November 30th. Right. So, I mean, we should, we should work with that timeline. We'll be, we'll be ready on the 21st. We'll, we'll pencil in the 26th as a possibility. Um, a couple more meetings, they'll tie this stuff up, whether it's one or two. Bottom line is this is coming together. Um, even with the sort of storm and drong about uh, the phase in issues, I think the tone in the room was fine. Some of the members are going to let off steam and some of the members are going to express that they're frustrated. We know that there are advocates. We talked about this last week. We know there are advocates who are expressing disappointment with the plan. It's sure. not It's not soon enough. It's not enough money. It doesn't do all the things we wished it would. So a $4 billion plan isn't good enough. It should have been six or eight. So, I mean, all of that is going to be in the mix. And whether that's tactical or genuine, it doesn't really matter. It's all, it's all going to be part of this going forward. So next couple of weeks, this will get tied up one way or the other. And then we'll get to like take a few deep breaths. We'll have a conference. We'll have some holidays and we'll come back in January. And suddenly there'll be a stack of blue paper that'll say, you know, House Bill 2 or House Bill 275 or House Bill 1875 or whatever it is. And here it is. And that's when we'll really figure out what, what it is does. in the bill and I'm what a, it does. I'm, yeah, so what's in the bill is going to be a big question. I don't think we're going to get all those answers by Thanksgiving. Great way to wrap this segment up. We're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about two new issues that we find interesting that are great examples of new technology, driving new policy, all that and more after the break. The Local Government Insurance Trust is the primary source for Maryland local governments to get insurance coverage. When the private insurance market doesn't understand your needs and doesn't really want to be in the business of covering your law enforcement officers and other public employees, Legit will be there. That is exactly why Legit was created over 30 years ago. Legit is different. Legit is owned and managed by its local government members. 
That means that when we do well, you do well. Members get premium credits when the trust has a good year. And Legit offers training and best practices year-round to make sure our members are doing their best with risk management. Competitive prices, outstanding service, and coverage that fits your needs as a local government. You can't beat Legit for all your coverage needs. Find out more at lgit.org or drop by their exhibit space at the MML or MAKO conference. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we love to talk about new technology driving new policy. We've talked about Uber and Lyft on this show. We've talked about, you know, different ways that counties and local governments and state governments and the federal government are responding to new technology. And oftentimes, government is slow to respond with new policy to deal with some of these innovations. Yeah, I think that's look, the rule is the innovation happens first, and then public policy scrambles to try and catch up and reset the way things are written right. or framed or, or taxed or regulated or whatever. So. And now we have one of our other favorite topics, libraries. We do love libraries. We love our libraries. And they're being hit with this this new policy from a major publisher when it comes to purchasing ebooks. And Michael, obviously ebooks, relatively new technology. You used to go to the library, you would you would check out a physical book. Now you have ebooks that are very, very popular, you know, not only in the library, but, you know, you go to a bookstore you, or better right. yet, you order on Amazon or wherever. Right. Mm-hmm. You get just your ebook to your tablet or your phone or whatever, and you right. read it right there. Special devices. My mom has one of these special devices that's got a, a special surface that makes it easier to read on the eyes and so sure. forth. So very, very, I mean, and my mom was a hardcore paper turner reader person and has, has become at least partially a convert to the, to the ebook. So this is not just young whippersnappers. This, this is some of the diehard readers out there. I mean, nonetheless, we know this technology has grown over the years, and it's it's been an imperfect fit. How does that fit into the sort of public sector distribution that libraries are built on? So forever there's been the idea that the library buys four copies of a book and the community demands it and they go out into circulation and people can look at the book, read the book or whatever, and to return it back to the library some, somebody else can. Sure. That's the general idea. Right. And I mean, to to take a big concept and make it smaller, it's sort of a trade-off if you're a publisher. You don't know how many people would have been willing to buy that book from this town. Mm -hmm. But if you can sell four copies to this town's library and then the next town over and the next town over and the thousands upon thousands of libraries and other book sharing services or whatever that are around, you end up having a big constituency to buy your book and that's not so bad. Well, get some guaranteed revenue, right? Right. So, okay. How do you make that fit when the product is something that can be transported electronically as opposed to here's the actual physical book? And if you don't bring it back in two weeks, another person can't read it because we don't have it. Right. And, you know, I think when ebooks were first introduced, there's probably a thought we can't do this because, you know, Michael Sanderson is going to find a way to crack this code really sneaky, and then right? he's going to be sneaky. He's going to find a way to download this ebook to his tablet and then send it all around. It'll be circulated outside of the library. I think most of that has waned. And now libraries do purchase multiple copies of ebooks. And the same rules apply, though. If you want to rent the ebook, if you want to check it out, you're the only one that can have that that copy at at one time. So you read it and then you digitally return it to the library and then I can get it after you. So there are electronic safeguards. The the library essentially, as I understand it, is buying a license to to have the the property, to share it to people on a limited basis. The the, the property then disappears off your computer after your borrowing period. Right. So, So you can no longer access And that's the idea is they're buying a license. It moves around from person to person. um, But that is at least a general analog to buying one copy of the book that different people could have and read. Sure. And, you know, what's happening now, Macmillan Publishing, it's a big hitter, big hitter, big hitter. hitter. They released this new policy that essentially says 
that libraries now can only purchase one copy of a newly released ebook, and they will not be able to purchase additional copies until eight weeks after the original publication. This only applies to ebooks, not to physical copies of books. But obviously, Michael, the idea from Macmillan is we want more people to buy the ebook as soon as it comes out. While the hysteria is pretty high, yeah, everybody's big hot excited. Seller comes right? Out. right, exactly. We don't want them going to the library and getting, you know, the library has 10 copies. 10 people can rent them at, at one time. Now they're only going to get one, and they have to wait eight weeks until they can get another copy. And libraries across the country, Michael, are pushing back, and they're calling uh, for other libraries to boycott Macmillan. And this embargo is really starting to affect Macmillan, I think. And they've, they've, they've sort of, I think, changed their tune a little bit. They've backed off and said, look, we're willing to talk about this. But I think you and I would agree that this is obviously a situation where New technology is driving new policy, and people just haven't figured out how to make this work just yet. Right. I, I would say, in, in my mind, it's a little bit like I'm. You know, I, I used to teach economics courses, and and there's still a frustrated economics professor in me somewhere, but. Economics is a big believer of systems eventually find an equilibrium. So you go back and forth and the way prices get set are like Adam Smith's invisible hand. And if the farmer has too much stuff at the end of the day, he'll lower his price. And if he sells out in the middle of the day, he'll raise his price and eventually we'll find just the right place. Sure. This to me feels like a market that's still in flux and has not yet found an equilibrium. So, I mean, if you're Macmillan and you're another book publisher, these folks will probably start working together and engaging in similar policies. They'll work like a, another economic term, a cartel, a right? Cartel. And, yeah, so, right? But so I would imagine that this is, this is going to be a back and forth between community buyers for libraries and mass sellers who are still trying to maintain sales and they're fearful of losing their sales. The problem is if, if your book is not available as an ebook from the local library, are those people going to buy it? Will they still demand works from that author? I mean, the problem is if you cut it off and you reduce the demand, then maybe you'll reduce the need for the library to carry your books anymore. So I think this thing can sort itself out, but it's interesting that the flux that we're in right now, the sellers are almost biting back and saying, we think we made too good of a deal for you all in the public to sell just a couple electronic copies. You can just sling it around from device to device. Lots of people get their eBooks and you know, that's, that's satiating the desire for our books more than we had realized. Mm -hmm. Um, I also have to think this is a side comment, but part of what keeps people buying good old fashioned books versus ebooks is there's lots of people who say, I just like the feel of the paper. I like turning a page and I don't get the same mental satisfaction when I read something off of a screen. Similar to people who want to get the newspaper, the newspaper day, right? right? Same argument, right? So we know that sits out there. That's an argument for getting the, the, the bound book versus the ebook. But now we're competing just an ebook that you buy versus an ebook you rent from the library or borrow from the library. There's, there's no tactile difference. There's no difference in the experience. It might be exactly the same files. You buy it yourself for $25 or your library buys their copy and you wait in line to rent it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. Now there's no longer a difference in experience. Like my, my wife loves owning books mm -hmm. and we have shelves of books that we've both read or that neither of us has read that we but proudly display. Day, right. Day, right? <laughs> but you know, yeah, exactly. But, but so, so, I mean, but we're, we're that we're, we're bookshelf family and our kids have books on shelves and we have books on shelves, but owning the book is an experience you get by buying it rather right. than having a friend loan it to you or right. buying, getting it from the, from the library. No such thing. I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody walks around saying, hey, look at my library on my Kindle device. Isn't this amazing? Wow. I don't think anyone does that. Right, right. <laughs> so, it's a good point. It's so good point. so there's, there's one less hook mm -hmm. to keep people as buyers rather than borrowers. These are, you know, the e-books from the library are really in direct competition with the item that's being purchased. That's a good point. I think, you know, for me, it's interesting to see the libraries really coming together and, and boycott 
boycotting McMillan, putting up a major fight. Also, you know, they pay more money than you would if you went and bought the ebook as a as a private citizen. The libraries do pay about double right. what they cost to the to the general public. So they're saying, look, we're already paying more for this. There's no reason for you to do this. You're just hurting our general mission, which is to make sure that everybody has access to the same content. And that, of course, is something that's going to get them fired up. And expect, I mean, this is this story's not over. No, and it will not be exclusively confined to libraries and eBooks. We're going to see the same thing happen with audiobooks, which is another growing component in this marketplace, and the market for textbooks mm. and higher education in particular is just waiting to crack. It's a clearly imperfect market, and over time, we're going to start to see more and more textbooks become open source, you know, free to the student and so forth. Information is dying to be free, right? Right, right. So we're going to see these kind of conflicts show up in lots of places on Beyond Libraries. So just the beginning of an interesting fight. But don't mess with our libraries. Don't mess with our libraries, but don't think that Macmillan is going to take this without a fight either. No, no. They got, they've got friends in high places and they're up there too. So, so the, you know, the 15 big publishing houses are probably having a meeting that looks like something out of the Godfather as they're trying to decide, you know, well, all right, how do, how do we fix this problem? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's probably true. Another issue, Michael, that we found very interesting is going on in Los Angeles and it's going on at the airport. Apparently, there is a massive traffic problem at the terminal, which we Shocking. can all imagine. Shocking. Right? Traffic, right. traffic in Los Angeles? At the airport? Really? Really, really. <laughs> so there's a new policy that's <clears throat> going to go into place, Michael. And essentially, it is if you get off the airport, if you get off the airplane, you get through the terminal, you're tired, you get out to the curb. And as you're walking out, you're, you're, you're hailing your Uber or your Lyft. Yeah. And, you know, you're, you're ready to walk outside and you're used to it being right there. You jump in and you go. That's not going to happen anymore. So too crowded. They have, you know, like most airports over the last, I don't know, just the last three or four years, this has become a big enough thing that airports have been designating here's a particular lane or here's a particular area and the ride sharing services. We're going to ask you to use that space. And we'll tell all the drivers, if you're picking up people at this airport, go over by section four. And that's going to be our, either the informal place or we'll put up signs saying this is for ride sharing. So LAX extending this idea, big airport, big, busy airport and so forth. So Presumably, they've got spaces carved out for, you know, shuttle vans that take you to the rental car places. They've probably got a space cleared out for taxi cabs, the old school version. But if you're new school, where are they sending you now? There's a spot for buses. There's a spot for, you know, pick up and drop off by a family member or a friend, the taxis. But now you're going to have to get on a bus and ride to a separate lot to get your ride-sharing Uber or Lyft that's going to take you to your destination. Obviously, there's going to be some pushback about this. But again, LAX is saying we don't have the room. There's too much traffic. And I think, Michael, this goes to something we were talking about earlier. When airports were designed, weren't designed with these ride-sharing companies in mind. And now you do have a lot more traffic because you have private residents you know, turning on their Uber, their Lyft light and showing up at the airport. Right. So the airports generally, I mean, LAX is the first to try this exact thing to basically create an island for ride sharers. So, so, you know, if you want to, if you want to get a ride from Uber, if, if grandma's coming to pick you up, that's fine. But if you're getting a ride from Uber or Lyft, get on, a, get on this bus, wait 15 minutes to get taken to this place. And that's where your driver's going to be. Hopefully. Uh, hopefully. Right. right? So, Anyway, you can see how the people, I mean, what people love about this new technology is that it's simple and and responsive and and quick, right? So you push your button and it says your driver's going to be there in three minutes and it takes you three minutes to walk out to the place you're supposed to be. Um, I mean, I've done this at BWI recently. It's, you know, there's sort of a special area where they want ride sharers to go. It's a little separate from, from the bus pickup places and it seems to work okay. Mm-hmm. at the moment, but maybe if you triple or quadruple the capacity of people who are using rideshare, 
sharing services. Maybe BWI throws their hands up too. And I mean, we were at a conference recently where I thought it was an absolute nightmare to get to the rideshare area. You had to go up, you know, the elevator. First of all, you had to wait for the elevator with all these groups of people trying to get in and then go up and find your car in this, you know, hundreds of cars it seemed like were out there. And that was a perfect example of them trying to figure out a solution. Not the best solution in my mind, but that was annoying enough. I don't want to get on a bus and drive out to another lot just to get my 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 ride sharing car. What I could do instead, though, it sounds like, is just get a taxi cab. <laughs> get a cab because they've already got their station right up there at the airport. So, I mean that that sounds a little bit like picking winners. And I, you know, I neither of us know the details of what Los Angeles or Los Angeles County is doing or right, what LAX right. Airport has in mind. And you know, they want to build a full scale people mover that'll take people out to this location, get them there quickly. But that that's years out. Mm-hmm. So what? do you do about you know my ride tonight mm-hmm. and if the question is like i have to go through a 20 minute hassle to do a ride share or i pay half again as much to do a cab right in front of me i guess i just do the cab i mean it depends on you know, how miserable i am right well if you've been coming from the east coast and you've been on a plane all day it seems like you might just take the cab right, right? Yeah. and i mean this gets into a bigger question about you know we don't know the motivations like you said with the, with the taxi cabs but we have seen taxis and taxi unions fighting back against Uber and Lyft across the country where they feel like their business model has been infringed upon. We've seen it in Maryland, the big sure. you know, Uber bill that mm-hmm. that the taxis fought really hard. So maybe this is a win for them, whether or not they pushed it or not, we don't know. But also, Michael, the airports really don't have an incentive. If you get into an Uber or a Lyft, they're not making any money off of that, right? I mean, other than your convenience, they're really not incentivized to provide, you know, a special area for you to get picked right. up or add on and spend a bunch of money to make a specific area. In right. The motivations here are tricky. So, you know, un- unless, unless the airport or the airport authority or whoever's running the show has, uh, has an incentive to make this work better for ride sharers. I mean, they obviously the airport has an interest in there being order with their with their passengers mm-hmm. with the, the people who are who are using the airport for transit and they want the experience to be a good one i mean they're professionals but also it just serves their interest for people to be happy and calm but past that they don't really have a profit motive there unless the ride sharing companies we're footing the bill for like, we'll, we'll pay rent on this spot for this to be a ride sharing area. And that, that could turn into, you know, Ronald Coase would probably say, hold his economics Nobel prize and say, that's exactly that's how, how, how you should do it. They should pay money for access at the airport terminal. Mm-hmm. And if the taxi cab people won't pay as much money, move them out, let's let the other people in. Right. So I don't know, you know, if this ultimately becomes that kind of sort of rent seeking behavior or what, but uh, we're just loading, loading up with the economics terms today. <laughs> you love it. You love I, I do. It. I do. Love it too. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. To me, it's another market in flux, right? I mean, airports can't figure out how to accommodate this. They're doing their best. It's probably growing. It remains popular and growing to the point where whatever your plan is now, like whatever BWI is doing now, probably won't be good enough in a couple of years. So they'd be right to be thinking about, do we need an extra wing where, where people can safely stand and get their cabs or get their ride share? Or their get, flying or, cars. Or whatever, maybe right? Yeah, I mean, who knows, right? It'll keep coming, right? Right. So if you're building an airport now, this is definitely something you're thinking about. Yeah, absolutely, right? But but that's but that's the problem. Exactly. If this is a if this is a construction of facility problem, we don't build a new airport every two or three years. Exactly. We do one every like 50 years. Exactly. And so you know, we're not going to replace BWI anytime soon. We may rename it again. It's It's gone through six or eight cycles of names, right. but I mean, we're not doing that. So, you know, it's this is a matter of what, what do you attach on or like LAX is saying, we'll build a new satellite place and that's the best we can do right now. Right now, that's the best we can do. And speaking of this recurring theme, Michael, new technology driving new policy, we are once again going to discuss new technology driving new policy at the Make a Winner Conference. We're going to do a live recording of the Conduit Street podcast. Yay! Yes, very exciting. So and far, so good with those. That's yeah, been a good, good been run good. for us, I think. Those yeah. have been good. And we're going to talk about the ever-shrinking island of cable television, Michael. So, what is this about? So, I mean, telecommunications 
um, is is the general term. So if we're if we're into technology and technology is changing faster than public policy, telecommunications is a perfect example of that. So Maryland, like most places, is sitting around with laws written on the books about how do we how do we franchise and regulate and tax cable television because that was a different way of delivering your television signal rather than bunny ears antennas that I grew up with. So people started getting cable television and we realized, oh, they're going to need to be digging underground. They're going to need access to public rights of way and conduits. There needs to be a structured relationship between those companies and we want to make sure they provide service. So we'll come up with franchise agreements for cable television and so forth. Okay, that's been on the books since the 70s or definitely the 80s. Fast forward to today. The notion that cable television is a fundamentally different idea than the service you're getting over your wireless phone today or your wireless phone in a few years when you get a 5G 10 times as fast signal and you right. can stream whatever you need to. But what about your direct TV company? They're, they're not laying cable, but that seems awfully similar a service to cable television. What about the phone company? Verizon it used to be just my phone company, but now they provide me a dial. Tone. They provide me internet service and so internet, forth. Right. So exactly what is cable television? What is a competing service? And at what point do our laws and rules and taxes and regulation over these things basically fall apart and need to be rebuilt? It's, it's an interesting challenge if you're in this business. And if you're a neighborhood who's just dying to get service, you may be a little bit afraid because less regulation means less opportunity to, to, to sort of strong arm a company to serve your underserved community. Right. You can do that through a cable franchise. You can't force direct TV to provide a good, clear service in your neighborhood if you're off the beaten path. Right. And obviously, you know, we talk about rural broadband. We talk about 5G. These are issues that every county is dealing with. So we're really excited. We have some experts coming to join us for Thankfully. this podcast. Thankfully. Right. Yeah, I mean, we, we, <laughs> we do our best trying to carry these things, but no. uh, this will be this will be exactly what we need, a couple experts in the room, and the two of us reflecting things that we've gathered from talking with counties and county leaders. So I think it'll be a really lively topic and and well-suited for the podcast audience. And that session, Michael, is going to take place December 4th from 315 to 415. The Make a Winner Conference will take place December 4th through the 6th at the Hyatt Regency Chesapeake Bay Hotel in Cambridge. And I know already you know, registration is through the roof and it's going to be the place to be for sure. So you want to be at the conference, but if you can't be at the conference, we'll bring you some content over the podcast and talk about technology driving policy, one of our recurring themes and a favorite. And if you're at the conference, again, this is a session where you can come in and it's a live recording with an audience. So feel free to drop by. Please do come see us. It'll be it'll be really interesting. We'll see how well Kevin deals with hecklers because this is going to be our first round of having actual professional hecklers throwing tomatoes and rotten fruit and stuff like that. I I have. Could uh, happen. I'll I'll deal with it. I'll deal with it. I think we'll be all right. But until next week, Michael, we're going to go ahead and sign off. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a like. Follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook. Also follow the Conduit Street blog for all the latest information. Make sure you register for the Winter Conference. You don't want to miss it. Until next week, Kevin signing off for Michael, and we will talk to you soon. 